Hello and welcome to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Resnick. This episode is brought to you in part by Independent Pharmacy Alliance, IPA. IPA is a trade association and buying group representing 3,700 independent pharmacies, leveraging buying power to help pharmacies access pharmaceuticals at the best prices. IPA now serves 3,700 independent community pharmacies across the United States and offers a comprehensive third-party help desk, legislative advocacy, and continuing education free of charge to members. Learn more today at iapagroup.org. In this episode of the IPA podcast, we will speak with Antonio Chacha, the Chief Strategy Officer of Three Access Advisors, a consultancy that partners with private and government sector organizations to solve complex systemic problems and propel industry reform through data-driven advocacy. Chacha was instrumental in exposing the drug pricing distortions and discovered $244 million in hidden PBM spread pricing in Ohio Medicaid in just the past year. This set off a tidal wave of national scrutiny and reform. Their more recent data analyses have exposed new ways in which middlemen abuse a lack of transparency poor incentives, conflicts of interest, and unchecked power to undermine patient care and siphon value out of the healthcare system. Antonio, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Hey, it's my pleasure. We changed the podcast name to Two Tonys. I think so. I think this definitely should be the Two Tonys, no question about it. <laughs> you can be Tony number one. I'll be Tony number two. You know, we'll see if the uh, listeners will be able to keep up that way. So, <laughs> Before we get started today, can you speak a little bit about your professional background, how you became an advocate for drug affordability and PBM reform? I want to get into how you uncovered this massive $244 million in spread pricing in Ohio, but tell listeners a little bit about yourself personally and how you got involved in this and and where does your passion come from? Because this is not an easy topic. It is not an easy field for everyone to understand, but you've really helped turn the corner in letting policymakers know what PBMs are doing in terms of drug pricing. Well, to start, my dad's a hospital pharmacist. He's been one for about 40 years. And my sister is a Walmart pharmacist, both in Ohio. I originally started working as a pharmacy technician and went to Ohio State to be just like them. I hit organic chemistry and decided this is not my future. So I switched to journalism, actually. I had no idea what I actually wanted to be when I grew up. I knew that I liked troublemaking. I come from a long line of troublemakers. I come from a long line of Tonys who do the same thing. <laughs> so I ended up coming back to the Pharmacist Association because I started doing a little bit of work in, in the trade association world where I was running publications for a number of national trade associations. I went to Ohio Pharmacists Association. They had no job open. I said that I think I could be helpful to them. They hired me and then set me loose on the state legislature. What really got me motivated and insanely passionate about this industry was the complex nature. This is really, really complicated stuff. Drug pricing as a whole is one of the top five issues for lawmakers, constituents, almost on an annual basis. What was perplexing to me was how pharmacists who live in the middle of the drug price would complain to me about the lack of predictability and objectivity in how rates were set on reimbursements and on the buy side, 
how rates are set from an acquisition standpoint. And so you have a massive amount of opacity that lives within the provider level. And yet everybody's complaining about drug pricing, but the individual who lives in the middle of it and breathes it every day doesn't understand what's happening on either end of that transaction. To me, that was fundamentally crazy. And so pharmacists would come to me with, oh, Antonio, I bought a drug for a hundred bucks. I got paid 80. I don't know whether my wholesaler's screwing me or if the PBM's screwing me. And I didn't know how to answer that question either, yet they were asking me to go fix it. And what I learned along the way is that, look, there's things that you can do to whittle around the edges. But at the end of the day, why is it that everybody complains about drug prices, but nobody actually knows what the price is or should be? And so that is the starting point of when we said, we need to get obsessive about this because it is clear that nobody else, I don't want to say that nobody else knows it because clearly they do because a lot of people make money off of screwing that system. <laughs> but it was very clear that nobody in a public way, back to my journalism background, was exposing how the sausage was being made. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. I didn't know that about you, that you came from a healthcare provider standpoint, that your passion really developed when you worked on the pharmacy end, dealing with patients and seeing the reimbursement versus what the patients were being charged versus what the payer was being paid and then PBM keeping on their end. When you were working on the pharmacy end, did you encounter patients who were really in like dire straits because they couldn't afford their medications and they didn't know what to do? Well, look, I was just a kid, you know, 17, 18, 19, working as a technician up at Mark's deep discount store in Cleveland, Ohio. I didn't really think too hard about it, but I will say that there are two things that stood out to me when I was working as a tech. One was, it didn't make any sense to me that I could work at the Westlake Marks Pharmacy and be well-staffed and have an absolute wonderful time working with a pharmacist and patient and have the bandwidth to do so. And then I could go to the Marks Pharmacy in North Olmsted, Ohio, and it's a sweatshop. Mm -hmm. To me, it didn't make sense that these pharmacies are essentially paid the same. We're seeing roughly the same amount of patients. To me, from a pharmacy staffing standpoint, that never made sense to me. And the other thing that stuck out to me was how could Mrs. Jones come in and pay nothing for her lisinopril and then Mrs. Smith come in right after her and pay $20. Right. How come somebody has a $20 copay, but then somebody else might pay full list price for that medication? Mm -hmm. so that price discrimination that wasn't imposed by a pharmacy necessarily, but essentially being a reflection of benefits design, how is it that you can have such a system of inequity from one patient to the next to the next when they're all getting the same thing? I really think that's a really good term that you use, and I've never used it, but I think I'm going to start using it, pricing discrimination. It truly is pricing discrimination. If you have two diabetic patients, and they're both coming in, let's say, for Lantus, and one is paying, let's say, $50, and the other patient is paying nothing, that truly is pricing discrimination. And if they're both, let's say, lower income people, one person is making out, the other person isn't, but they're both in the same situation because they need that insulin to live. So I, I think that's a really good term to use. It really is pricing discrimination. 
And look, it happens everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Pharmacists do it. You know, the the whole drug supply chain does it. Mm -hmm. But if you and I were at the grocery store and you came in and got two bucks for a gallon of milk and I had to pay five, I'd be like, what the hell? Sure. That's not right. And when you look back at healthcare, and again, I didn't think this at the time when I was a technician because they had other things on my mind. But how is it when you really look at, when you boil it all down, the person who had a $0 copay is probably somebody who's employed and has really good benefits, right? Mm -hmm. The person who's paying maybe a slightly worse copay, they probably have a a slightly worse job because the benefits aren't as good. And then you have a cash-paying customer, a patient who can't afford insurance or doesn't have insurance. They're the ones that are paying the most. It is totally upside down. It is a crazy system. And when I got involved in this seven years ago, I couldn't believe how insane it was. And when I would tell friends and family about it, They couldn't believe it, that this kind of a system existed, the pharmacy supply chain. I wanted to shift a little bit to probably the biggest drug pricing story probably in the last five or maybe even 10 years. In terms of you uncovered, you helped uncover $244 million in PBM spread pricing in Ohio Medicaid. And for those who may not be pharmacists or pharmacy owners who are listening to this, Medicaid is a state program that provides health insurance to underserved communities. And it's taxpayer funded. And there was something called spread pricing that was happening in Ohio. And spread pricing is a nice game where these fortune 10 companies basically pay the pharmacy low, charge their client high, in this case, the state, and then they keep whatever is left over in the middle. And in this case, it was $244 million. And to me, that still sounds like a lot, a lot of money. So how did that happen? How did you uncover this? And give us the story on that one. Summer 2016, this is about a year after we passed our MAC transparency laws in the state of Ohio. Lawmakers really had to work to get that bill over the goal line. The intent was to create some objectivity on how reimbursement rates were being set on generic drugs for pharmacists who were complaining that they were wildly either underpaid or sometimes overpaid, depending on the particular medication. You might imagine the pharmacists were complaining about the underpayments. more. (laughs) Sure, of course. You know, we passed that law. Within two weeks of it taking effect, Express Scripts sent contract addendums out to all the pharmacies saying, we don't do MAC pricing anymore. We're going to pay you a different way. That's when the effective rate contract started emerging. As we were trying to navigate, okay, how can they do that? It's because the coaching we were getting from a government affairs perspective from our national associations was largely insufficient. I don't say that as a criticism. It just means that we're playing checkers when they're playing chess, right? So... Regardless, it was the middle of 2016, pharmacists in Ohio saw massive cuts in reimbursement within the Medicaid Managed Care Program. Medicaid Managed Care, we had five insurance companies that were ultimately adjudicating Medicaid benefits. Four of the five were all with CVS Caremark. CVS Caremark changed something in the summer of 2016. Pharmacies across the state saw a 60 to 80% cut in gross margin within a drop of a hat. And I went back to state officials to ask what changed, what happened not really understanding the dynamics of managed care very well at the time. And they said, we don't know what you're talking about. We've been paying more for prescription drugs than we ever have. And so at the time, I would categorize myself as somewhat of a dummy, but not too dumb to not understand how can you cut reimbursements to pharmacies and then on the other end of the transaction, the person paying the bill not seeing the savings of those cuts, right? I found a gentleman who had just entered the pharmacy world named Eric Packman. 
He was running a small chain of pharmacies in the state of Ohio, data analytics background, absolute wizard. And we started trying to diagnose what was happening. We stumbled across two data sets on CMS's website. And just for the listeners, CMS is? Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They ultimately are the federal program that oversees Medicare and Medicaid. CMS has what they call a national average drug acquisition cost for the purpose of this conversation, NADAC, okay? We took that data set and then we found CMS state drug utilization data, which is a data set also on CMS's website that shows on a quarter by quarter, state by state basis, what the cost of a medication is as reported by a state Medicaid program. So we were able, not me, but Eric in his data prowess, was able to stitch those two data files together and voila, we saw a growing disconnect between drug prices that were actually going down, but the cost of the state actually going up. Since we knew that pharmacists were not getting more of the pie, that was our ability to diagnose that growing gap between reality and the fake prices the state was exposed to. We took all that data and we laid it out to state Medicaid officials. At the time, our governor, John Kasich, was fancying himself as a possible presidential candidate. Right. Any problem brought to state officials was probably going to be a political problem for him. No. <laughs> now, some governors would take that and run with it and own it, right? Sure, sure. Governor Kasich was not a bad guy, but had a very cozy relationship with managed care plans. Mm-hmm. And so for whatever reason, it did not get the juice that it deserved. Right. And so we had meeting after meeting after meeting with state Medicaid officials until finally, I know what I'm being patronized. It was in February of 2018. I walked out of the Department of Medicaid. I'm not joking. I crossed two streets and I walked through the doors of the Columbus Dispatch where I said, hey, reporter, I've never talked to in my life. I have something to tell you. Right. And so I knew that this was a scandal. I knew it was something that regardless of whether the state was covering it up, the state was being overcharged. And if the public knew how money was being wasted in the Medicaid program, which is the program where the state cuts the biggest checks out of anything in the budget, I knew it was going to be a big deal if we could get the media to understand what was happening. Sure. Michael Murphy, who was a student on rotation with us at Ohio Pharmacists Association at the time, but I'll never forget, I walked in, we rolled everything out to them, Marty Schladen, Kathy Kandiski, amazing people. By the end of it, their heads were spinning and they said, We don't know exactly what you've presented to us, but we know there's something big here. What we could tell you is we think we'd probably get two or three big stories out of this. For those of you that don't read the Columbus Dispatch, first story launched in March 2018. Up until now, they have written over 200 articles about PBMs and how drug pricing works since that time period. And that's what caused all the momentum to audit the books. The state auditor, Dave Yost, jumped in. They found a $244 million, you know, the rest is history. When this story finally broke and media was talking about it, I remember there were stories after the dispatch had the story, it went all over the country and everybody was talking about how much money was basically stolen from the Ohio Medicaid system. Was there anybody in Ohio Medicaid that was surprised? Did they know about any of this? Or did they just never bother to look? Or were they just completely unaware? Or maybe a little of everything? So I'm glad you asked that question because when we told Medicaid what we felt was going on, their words to us were, there's no way there's a gap 
between what pharmacists are paid and what we're being charged. Wow. They thought you were just lying to them. Yeah. Which may be one of the reasons that they brushed it aside, right? And let's not be totally unfair to them. They might've just thought I was full of it. So not only was it happening, but it was $244 million worth of happening, which is mm-hmm. why when the audit came out, Medicaid officials got in defense mode and they said, well, we don't know if it's too much or too little. And I'm sitting there saying, hold on a second. We met three months ago and you didn't even know it was a thing. You thought it was $0. And now you find out that it's $244 million. You're like, oh, maybe it's not too much. Give me a break. It was over $6 a claim. What I thought you said was really interesting. And me as a government affairs guy, Governor Kasich. So he was running for president and he didn't want this story to really be out there because it wasn't going to look good for him. You know, I don't know if I wasn't important enough to be able to talk to Big John himself. So it's hard for me to, to, to guess his motivations. But look, I mean, this is a good lesson for other folks that are trying to work within government, not just in pharmacy, but anywhere. Recognize where people's incentives are. Recognize where their loyalties and allegiances are. All of those things are really important. My bet is, is this barely hit Governor Kasich's desk. You have a lot of people that work underneath him who know what's going on and know to protect him, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. somebody somewhere along the way was making a decision to either protect him or protect the managed care plans because they were more favored than pharmacy or some combination of that or something that I don't even know about, right? It could be any one of those things. It could be protecting some underling Medicaid administrator who was falling asleep on the job, playing solitaire and angry birds instead of actually watching drug prices, right? But that culture of protectionism exists everywhere. I've seen it in state after state after state. And it doesn't just exist in Medicaid. It exists within commercial sector as well, where somebody is paid a lot of money, not a lot of money, or just the right amount of money to oversee drug spend, but don't have all the expertise and resources they need to actually hold it accountable. Sometimes that's a fault of them. Many times it's not. You're asking somebody to hold spending accountable against Fortune 15 companies who know how the system is played because they created the system themselves. So it's easy to fault some, but I also am sympathetic because it's not like the system is designed in a way where anybody can just all of a sudden wake up and start controlling it. It's meant to be abused by the vendors who control it. I just wanted to pivot a little bit to a story that I read recently, and it has to do with Medicare Part D. Right now, there's an infrastructure bill that's moving through Congress. It appears that Congress is getting closer to a deal. But in the previous administration, there was a rule that was instituted where the rebates in Medicare, rebates are discounts that manufacturers pay, let's say, to a PBM, or in this case, a payer Medicare, to hypothetically reduce the cost of the drug. The rule was originally put in to require that those rebates go back to the patient directly in order to reduce the drug price. But now we're hearing that that may be delayed because they want to use those dollars for infrastructure projects. And I just want to get your thoughts on what did you think of the rule when it was originally proposed? And now with this latest development, where do you think it might be going? Do you think that that rule would have made a difference at all in the prescription drug price for patients? Ultimately, there are economists, there are policy folks who believe that the rebating system is very good because you have large insurance companies and PBMs 
who are able to use their clout and leverage against drug makers to get large concessions off the prices of drugs. On paper, it sounds fantastic, right? It takes a bully to beat up a bully. The problem is, is that drug companies can set prices however high they want. And so that does not change in a rebating system. Let's say CVS Caremark has the most leverage in the marketplace, meaning that drug makers have the greatest incentive to offer the largest concessions off the price of the drug in order to get access to all the patients that CVS Caremark ultimately represent. Well, let's say I'm Pfizer. I want all my drugs going to CVS Caremark patients. In order to do so, I got to pay up. I've got to lower the price of my medication. The problem is, is I don't actually lower the price of my medication. What I do is I increase the discount off my price. Mm -hmm. Because CVS Caremark benefits can retain some of those rebates or use them in a way to artificially suppress premiums, it is their incentive to get the biggest kickback that they can from Pfizer and every other drug maker. Well, what does Pfizer do in response to that shakedown? They raise the prices of their medication to increase the concessions. So Mm -hmm. look no further than insulin. There was an article in Axios that was talking about the price of Lantus. Lantus is a really expensive insulin product that many people have to take in order to manage their diabetes. In the piece, Bob Herman and Axios mentioned that the list price of Lantus is $283.56 for a single vial of insulin. And we all know how much people have been complaining about the prices of insulin, right? Well, in the article, he actually mentions that the net price on average, after all the discounts and rebates, is around $37 per Mm. month. Wow. 13% of the list price is the actual cost of the medication from the drug maker's perspective. The PBMs will say, that's us doing our job. That's all us. The problem is the PBM retains a lot of those rebates. That inflationary impact that rebates have on price, that's where price discrimination starts. Somebody pays zero, somebody pays 20, somebody pays 283 bucks. But in the Medicare space, what they were proposing was essentially popping that balloon, saying that seniors who are stuck in the deductible phase of their plan, they shouldn't have to pay the $283. Let's make sure that they pay the 37 rather than the overinflated amount. Because PBMs and health plans have to pass those rebates through, meaning that they lower premiums, if they were to get rid of the rebates and if they were to get rid of pharmacy DIR fees, this is the same type of argument, regardless, the concessions that they're getting in Medicare get pushed through to artificially lower premiums. Well, what that means is that we are artificially inflating drug prices for those that are sick for the sake of lowering premiums for everybody. It Mm -hmm. is the sick subsidizing everybody else's insurance premiums. The argument that the feds were making was they were to get rid of the rebates, it would have an increased cost to the Medicare program. So the federal government would have to pay more money. All of that is actually true. The problem is, is that that's a horrible system design, right? Mm -hmm. And frankly, that is Congress saying we are willing to forfeit lower drug prices for the sake of funding our roads and bridges. That is exactly what is happening right now today. Look, I'm not an expert on roads and bridges. There could be very good reasons why that trade-off is worth it from a policy perspective. But I go back to, if we care about high drug prices, then the solutions have been here sitting on the table and we've been willing to trade them for other goodies. I'm in New Jersey and we have a lot of potholes. 
in New Jersey, but I think I can definitely live with some of these potholes if somebody is able to afford their insulin, if somebody's able to get their life-saving medications for whatever disease state they may have to make PrEP, which is a HIV prevention medication affordable for people. I think, you know, I could definitely live, you know, a little while longer with maybe some bad potholes around. But it's interesting that this is going on now when high drug prices are some of the, is probably one of the biggest issues that people are facing. It's like you said, it's rated probably in the top five of issues, but that this is the direction that they're going. And I also found it kind of interesting what you're saying, what you said too, is that the system itself is the problem. While there may be some truth to keeping premiums low in certain instances, it's the way our system of drug pricing is structured as a whole that seems to be the problem from what you're saying. If you were to point to maybe another country or somewhere else, do you see a model that you think could work here that could be instituted and just work better all around where we could lower drug pricing, but at the same time help lower premiums as well? I think the problem is the United States is unique, right? The Bernie Sanders crowd would say the United States is bad because we don't have a single payer system. But I argue that it's not applicable here because Mm -hmm. the drug industry and healthcare industry is so reliant on the United States as the lifeblood for everybody else. Our high drug prices can enable lower ones in other countries. We are paying a disproportionate share in this country relative to others. Now, some might say that's an argument to move to a single payer, right? To say, look, you know, let's press down on everything. Let's start capping it rather than using this horrible system of middlemen. I believe that incentives in healthcare matter a lot. The degree of those incentives and how they are structured. And so I think there are reasonable arguments to be made that you want to keep a capitalist system in place. But in order to do so, you have to create a certain ground rules in order for it to be functional. And that requires a lot of transparency. It requires a lot of tweaking of incentive design and structure design, right? Because just when you think you have a perfect architecture, the rats start finding their way in the building. And so you need to be constantly calibrating it to make sure that capitalism is working in a way that you want it to, right? If you're a free market person and you don't want, you know, the hands on on healthcare at all, this is this argument is not going to work for you, right? But this is going to be essentially a heavy hand capitalism, meaning that, you know, the government is going to be involved in tweaking how the system works. And so long as we have that approach to healthcare, we have to be constantly calibrating it. And the way that it's calibrated today is completely broken. Big PBMs are ripping off the system, but it is not just them, okay? Everybody learns how to maximize their margins in the field of play. If I wanted to be a villain, I could turn pharmacy into one of the greatest enemies against plan sponsors. I could give you all the tips on which high AWP drugs to start dispensing. I could tell you all the drugs that PBMs are forgetting to map. I could tell you all the ways that you could start talking to a physician to get more utilization of drugs that overpay, right? But that's, that's wrong, okay? We don't want that system, right? We want an ethically aligned system so that people have the right incentives to do the right thing. And so until we tweak this system and start better calibrating, it's just going to continue running amok. 
and high drug prices will continue to persist and patients will be exposed to higher and higher cost sharing along the way. It's frustrating because a lot of the policy solutions are sitting there, but a lot of, I think, our elected officials either don't understand it or they're too cowardly to address it. Antonio, I, I really appreciate you joining me today. I think you're probably the smartest guy in this space. I think pharmacy is definitely lucky to have someone like you out there who's so passionate about drug pricing, who really wants to do the right thing by exposing a system that has been ripping off way too many people. And I know we're going to see a lot more from you. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Anthony, I think, thank you for the ego boost. I'm just going to say one more thing real quick. It shouldn't be me. I'm not a pharmacist. I don't have the greatest intellect in this space, okay? I have a lot of expertise, but I would challenge pharmacists and non-pharmacists that are listening to this. We just decided one day that we were going to put on Twisted Sister and say, we're not going to take it anymore. <laughs> and when I see pharmacists engaging in this, typically it, it tends to be a little bit of a me-focused advocacy, right? You know, what about me? What about my pharmacy? Trust me, I feel that plight. I get it. I know it's a struggle. But I would encourage folks to do two things. One is stop being quiet and stop letting the system happen to you. Start influencing that system. Start learning that system so you can better articulate the dynamics of that system and help drive the necessary system change. And then the second thing is, is I would ask you to broaden your perspective beyond what's happening at your pharmacy. Think about how the system Yes, it's exploiting you, but how is it exploiting others? Pharmacists could be more solution-oriented to the big picture and also be more articulate on how the system is designed and how to fix it. That's when I see real tidal wave opportunities for reform. So I'll just challenge your listeners to step up and speak out and start doing it in a way that's a lot more dynamic and objective than I think traditional advocacy has been back when I was still doing it. Antonio, thank you for joining me today. I hope you come back one day. We can do another episode of uh, Tony and Tony. For more information and to learn more about Antonio Chacha, go to 3accessadvisors.com and 46brooklyn.com. Thanks for listening to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. This podcast was made possible by the Independent Pharmacy Alliance and the president and CEO, John Giampolo. It was produced and edited by Zach Stone with music by Marcus Way. For previous and future episodes, check out ipagroup.org. Thank you very much. Bye for now.